Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come in to the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which is the Lord's lot, on which the Lord's lot fell, and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let, let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness." Then Aaron shall come to the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. 
The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. And they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute, statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did. As the Lord commanded Moses. Amen. Beloved servants of God through Christ, it's difficult for us to imagine really what it was like to serve God among the people of Israel out in the wilderness. It's not just that the age and the culture were so radically different lacking our modern technology, being so much more isolated from the rest of the world. It was deeper than that. Their relationship with God was in many ways radically different. In some ways that are, are subtle, not readily apparent to the eyes, but also in dramatic ways that would have seemed stunning, maybe even unnerving to us. Yet despite the substantial differences between their lifestyle and even their relationship with God and ours... They worshiped the same God as we worship. They trusted in the same Savior as the one who saves us. And they were saved in precisely the same way, which is to say they were saved by trusting in Jesus Christ who was to come. Now how they could have faith in Jesus, how they could come to know and trust Jesus to provide life for them, that is what we've been seeing in our recent series of sermons. We've been investigating how God revealed Christ to a people who lived before Christ. And our text for today shows one of the clearest revelations about the heart of Jesus' mission when he came. Annually, the people of Israel were to stop everything, setting their work aside in a Sabbath rest, setting their food aside in a day-long fast, setting their worldly cares aside in devotion to God. And they were to behold the ceremonies that comprised the Day of Atonement. That's what Leviticus 16 shows us. The ceremonies involved in the Day of Atonement. And what we must see as we study that text is how those ceremonies all served, every one of them served to reveal Christ and our need for Christ. The Day of Atonement displays true deliverance from the misery of sin. That's our theme this evening. The Day of Atonement reveals true deliverance from the misery of sin. But before it reveals the deliverance 
It has to reveal the misery. And so the first thing we see is how Israel was, was taught on this day of its alienation from a holy God. The introduction of this text, notice it, it harkens back to chapter 10. Chapter 10 tells us at the very beginning, the first three verses of that chapter, the story of Nadab and Abihu. Kids, that's probably not a story you heard in Sunday school. The story of Nadab and Abihu. They were two of Aaron's four children. Aaron being Moses' brother, the the priest. And these two, while serving as priests in the wilderness, they decided one day that they were going to do something new. Whether because they felt it would be meaningful or because they were unsatisfied with what God had already given them, we don't know. But what we know is that they each took a censer, one of those metal boxes that held coals from a fire. And they brought incense using those censers into the tabernacle. But God had not commanded the worship that they were bringing. God had not specified the act that they were committing. And so as they brought their incense near to the Lord, fire came out from the Lord and devoured Nadab and Abihu where they stood. And at that time, we read that Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. Now, in chapter 16, Moses recalls that incident for two reasons. First of all, it gives us the setting. It tells us that it was after Nadab and Abihu were destroyed for their sin. That's when God gave this instruction. But it also gives us an important bit of context, an important motivation for the people to pay attention to this chapter. In the death of Aaron's sons, all Israel saw that God cares deeply about how he is worshipped, how he is approached, how people draw near to him. He wants his people to come, not according to their whim, and not according to the ways of the people around them, and not according to what pleases the people according to a survey. He wants them to come submissively, heeding his commands for worship. And so he brings a new command. Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die. Remember, when we studied the consecration of the tabernacle, the most holy place was that square room in the back of the holy place. Remember, the holy place is where we had the the table for the showbread and the seven-tiered lampstand and the the altar for incense. And then there was a veil that blocked off the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat was. And that represented the throne room of God. And at the consecration of the tabernacle, the cloud of God's presence initially filled the whole tabernacle, but then remained within that most holy place. This was the place where God would dwell among his people right in the midst of their camp. This was a physical representation of heaven where God himself would dwell among his people. And now he says no one may enter that most holy place. No one may come before God. But then the question arises, how then may men draw near? How may they come into the presence of God? Or may they? 
Well, the rest of the chapter answers that question. Practically, immediately, it would show that one man may enter the most holy place annually, one time a year. But he must come in a particular way with particular sacrifices when he comes. And to that end, God instituted a, a series of sacrifices and ceremonies. By these rites, Israel would learn and we must learn why men are separated from God. And meanwhile, and meanwhile God's people would see how man may be restored from his alienation, from being cut off. And what those ceremonies would show is not only what needs to happen, but also until that ultimately happens, it would show them that they would remain alienated. At the end of the chapter, it says, The priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments, and shall make atonement for the holy sacraments, etc., etc. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for their sins once a year. It was to be a continual requirement. If they would continue to have peace with God, if they would have the comfort of having God dwell among them, the only way that was possible is if continually the priest would come, continually the sacrifices would be offered, continually that reminder of sin would be set before the people. It had to be done continually because the people continued to sin. The offense continued to rise up. And they continued to be alienated from God. And it wasn't just them. Their alienation from God, the reason that they had to be separated from His immediate presence. That's not how it was at the start. At the start, God walked with, with Adam in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. Adam spoke with God personally before he sinned. But when sin came about, it broke that intimate communion that man was made to have with God. And that's something that all of humanity has in common. We all sin. We all rebel against God. We all defile ourselves with the pollution of sin. And therefore, we all are unworthy to enter the presence of God. All of us need what this chapter shows us. And apart from the provision this chapter sets forth, we will remain alienated from God. Folks, that's not a small thing. God is the source of our life, of our strength, of our health, of our every good. Apart from God, we can have no good whatsoever. And God is the only one who can fix our brokenness. He's the only one who can rescue us from our enslavement to sin. The only one who can repair for us the brokenness of our relationships, the only one who can empower us to fulfill our purpose. But we cannot expect that He will do those things if we remain alienated from Him, if we remain in our sin. Not just for old Israel, but for all men. Alienation from God is the heart of our misery. We desperately need to be delivered from that misery. But not just anyone can affect that deliverance. Our text is quite clear. Only one man was authorized to approach God. And he wasn't able to do it however he wanted. Every detail was specified by the Lord. When he came to God, when he drew near, he had to be and he had to act with the utmost perfection. And so our second point, 
access comes through a consecrated mediator. <coughs> For Israel in the age of Moses, the one authorized mediator on the Day of Atonement was Aaron, the high priest. Now understand, children, understand, the priests were all called and ordained as mediators. A mediator is one who comes between God and man. So the priests would bring sacrifices and prayers to God on behalf of the people, and he would bring instruction and blessing to the people on behalf of God. And that's something all the priests had in common. They all, as long as they remained ceremonially clean, during their time of service, they all could offer sacrifice. They all could bring the daily prayer. They all were qualified also to speak on behalf of God and to give the people God's blessing. But they weren't all interchangeable. They were all descendants of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi. They were all able to do that work. But there was one who was set apart. The high priest. Aaron was the first high priest and the office passed from him to his oldest son and so through the generations. Only the high priest could offer the sacrifices of this special day. That's what set him apart. And even that authorization was limited. He could only do it once a year. He could only do it in the way that God prescribed. Part of the commandment, as our text showed us, is the way that he should dress before coming on this particular day. Normally, normally the clothing of the high priest was rather ornate and spectacular. He wore linen clothing, white, pure. But then over that, a robe of solid blue edged with beautiful golden bells and colorful pomegranates. And over that, a breastplate made of intricate and colorful weaving on which were set stones in golden settings laying out the tribes of Israel on his shoulders were onyx black stones skillfully inscribed with the tribes of Israel he had golden chains holding the breastplate and affixing the the tunic a white turban atop his head with a gold plate declaring holiness to the Lord really it was a stunning uniform, boasting workmanship and worth befitting a king. But he must not wear it on this day of atonement. On this day he must wear only linen, a lightweight white cloth that was really indistinguishable except for its pure whiteness. His shirt, his pants, his sash, his turban were all to be white linen and that showed two things. It showed, first of all, holiness. This was clothing that was to be utterly undefiled and unadorned. Holiness to the Lord because he had to come into God's presence and only those who are absolutely holy can enter the presence of God. But also humility. This was a day in which God's people recognized their sin in a way they never would the rest of the year. They must afflict themselves. And so it was a day where it was unsuitable for the high priest to enter into God's presence with gold and flashy colors and intricate, ornate workmanship of man. No, he must come in humility, in lowliness, acknowledging his sin and his unworthiness before God. Only in this way, in holiness and humility, may the high priest approach the presence of God. 
And when he came, he was to bring offerings that had been commanded by God. Remember, the priest is to mediate, to stand between sinful men and the holy God. And because they were sinful, he needed to bring sacrifices. By those sacrifices, atonement. We see that word a number of times. Atonement had to be made. Atonement comprises at least three things in this context. Expiation. That is the payment for justice, right? The cost of justice against our sin must be paid. Propitiation. A sacrifice must be made that will put aside the wrath of God, that will get rid of His wrath, His anger against sin. And cleansing. Sin defiles man. It makes them filthy. And they must become as clean as those linen clothes the priest was wearing. So he would bring sacrifices that were were aimed at showing the people the need for expiation, propitiation, and cleansing. And the high priest had to do that alone. No help. It wasn't a team effort. However, before he could do that, before he could bring those sacrifices for the atonement of Israel, he had business to attend to. He had to bring a bull as a sin offering for himself and the priesthood. You see, he was a member of Israel with all of its human weaknesses. Aaron was a sinful man, and so were all of the priests who followed him. And so before bringing a sacrifice for the people before God, their own sins had to be atoned for. Thus the sin offering, the bull that would atone for the sin of the priests. It would be killed out by the bronze altar, and its blood poured forth into a bowl. The high priest would take this blood... And he wouldn't go straight into the most holy place. No, no. He had to take a censer filled with coals from the altar. And he would take incense, special incense that was for this purpose only. He would go inside the veil and put that incense on. Kids, when you put finely ground incense on coals, what happens is a lot of smoke. A lot of good smell, but a lot of smoke. And that was intentional. It was to hide that throne of God the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat atop it. It was to hide that from Aaron, lest he see the presence of God. And it was to hide him from God in his sin. And having thus filled the most holy place with this incense that would hide him from the Lord, he could then go and get the blood and bring it in and sprinkle it before the Lord. Cleansing the most holy place from the sin of the priests, but also bringing atonement for the priests, pouring forth that blood that represented the sacrifice that died, the substitute that died for the sake of the sins of the priests. And then having made atonement in the most holy place, he must do so also in the holy place, the, outer, uh, the, the court where the table for showbread and the altar of incense and the candlestick were located, or the, the lamp. He must do so also at the altar making sure that in each place the sins of the priests and their defilement were taken care of. Now, we need to ask, what did Israel see in this? Obviously, they're not witnessing it firsthand, but they're being told by the lesser priests what the high priest is doing and why were they hearing this? What were they learning? Folks, they were seeing, first of all, the need for a mediator. They themselves were not free to come into God's presence because of their sin. Someone else had to come on their behalf to atone for them. Concerning the mediator, they would see that he had to be one of them, but one of them who had been set apart for this work. 
being humble, but also holy. And emphatically, they must see that he needed to be perfect. If he was to make atonement for the people of God, if he was to enter the presence of God on their behalf, he must be perfect. No sin may attach to him. His sin must be gone. And he must be as perfectly pure within as his clothing was without. Thing is, all the priests of Israel fell short. They were all sinful. They were all defiled. Each one needed what Aaron needed to offer sacrifice for their own sins. And none of the priests of Israel could finish the task. Year after year after year, the bull would be slaughtered, the blood would be sprinkled, the incense would be burned. Year after year after year, atonement was signified but not fully accomplished. In the high priest, Israel saw what they needed in terms of a mediator, but they didn't see the mediator they needed because that mediator was Jesus Christ. Like Aaron and all of the priests after him, Jesus was one of us. Hebrews 2, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. In all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Only Jesus came completely as one of us and also as completely holy. Hebrews 4 says of him, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Chapter 7 of Hebrews says, Such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the people's. He had no need because he had no sin. And this priest, he entered not the tabernacle that was a shadow of the truth, that was a, a copy of the heavenly things but he entered into heaven itself with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation not with the blood of goats and calves but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption Jesus was the perfect priest in every way that Aaron and all of his offspring could not be. And therefore Israel learned, and we must learn, to trust in him. No other can sympathize with us the way Jesus can while yet being free of sin, while yet being without fault or failure or defect. No one else is able to complete the task the way he was, the way he could, because no one else could enter into the true most holy place, the true throne room of God, but Jesus did. And he did it for us, for all of those who trust in him, for all of those who look to him. But he, when he entered that most holy place, when he entered heaven itself, he didn't just walk in empty-handed, no, he came with sacrifice. And this too, the high priests of Israel had to show, and that's the last thing that we see here, that they came with sacrifices to attain that atonement. 
So our final point, atonement by a comprehensive sacrifice. Now the prescriptions for this day included sacrifices of two kinds. Both sacrifices were necessary both to atone for Israel's sins and to consecrate them as a priestly people. Both sacrifices were necessary and both pointed them to Christ. First was the sin offering. This was a sacrifice that was meant to pay for, to to expiate a, a person's sin. The substitute would stand in the place of the sinner in the face of God's justice. And its blood would cleanse away the defilement of their sin. He did that first of all for himself and and the priesthood with the bull. But then then came a, a strange sin offering. You see, sin offerings were offered throughout the year. But never was one sin offering to comprise two animals except on this day. Two goats were brought forward. The lot was cast over them. One was set apart for Yahweh and one was set apart as the scapegoat. The one for Yahweh was killed in the same way that the bull was killed. His blood poured out and taken in, sprinkled in the most holy place, used to cleanse also the outer holy place, and then the altar. We don't find this out until later in the chapter, but then the rest of that goat A small portion of it was burned on the altar as a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord, but then the rest was taken outside the gates of the the camp or of the city later, outside of the encampment initially, and there it was burned in its entirety until it was nothing but ash. This first of all. But then the sacrifice had to be completed with the second goat. The priest would place his hands upon the goat's head and as much as he was possibly able to do, he would confess all the sins, all the transgressions, all the shortcomings of the people of God. Laying those sins symbolically upon that goat. And then a a man who had been chosen for the task was to lead this goat outside the camp and far out into the wilderness where it would be left to suffer whatever fate God had ordained for it. Now, what did that twofold offering teach the people of Israel? First, again, it showed their need for atonement because of sin. They needed, because of God's wrath against them and because of the defilement of their sin upon them, they needed a substitute whose blood would pour forth and whose body would be broken because of the sins they had committed. God's wrath must be propitiated The cost of justice must be expiated and they must be cleansed from their sin. That they must see first of all. But then they needed to see the full weight of God's wrath upon their sin. As that first goat of the sin offering was taken outside the camp and was utterly and completely demolished by the wrath of God, the the unquenchable fire of His wrath. They needed a substitute who would do that, but not that alone. They needed a substitute who also would be exiled for their sin because that's what sin does. It alienates us from God. It exiles us into the outer darkness, and that's what would happen to that scapegoat. It would be taken out to an uninhabited place where there was no food, where there was no water, where there were no obvious blessings of God. There to be abandoned. That's what we deserve. That's what all men deserve. But then there was another sacrifice, the burnt offering. 
This was the kind of offering that was, that was brought every morning and every evening on the bronze altar. And one of these also had to be brought on the Day of Atonement, and its significance was twofold. It also showed the destruction due for our sin. This was obvious when the animal was consumed by the flames of the altar, but it was more than that. This was the offering called the Olah, the, literally the ascension. Because when it was consumed upon the altar, notice this one isn't burned up outside the camp. No, it's right in the midst of the tabernacle, in the place where they worship God. Its body is not just consumed, but burned up in flames and smoke that rise to the heavens, thus the name ascension. And in its consumption and ascension into the heavens, that sacrifice showed the consecration of God's people. That they themselves were to become an offering to God, pleasing in His sight, every last bit of them, every portion, every aspect of them, being consecrated to God and used for His glory. Brothers and sisters, this too, these sacrifices, they, they pointed to Christ. He was the high priest, but He was also the perfect sacrifice. Because you see, none of these sacrifices wherever sufficient. Hebrews 10 tells us that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Man has sinned. Man must pay for his sin. And furthermore, again, these sacrifices were offered time and time and time again. The law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with the same sacrifices offered continually year by year make those who approach perfect. These all showed what had to happen, but they weren't it. They weren't the fulfillment. Only Jesus would overcome those deficiencies. He would come as the perfect mediator, but also as the perfect sacrifice. A man willing to die for the sins of men. A perfect, unblemished man offered up for those who were defiled and broken by their sin. And when he offered himself, when he was destroyed, his blood poured forth, his body broken consumed, as it were, outside the camp, he was able to utter with his dying breath the phrase, it is finished, tetelestai. It has been done. Nothing is remaining. And so Hebrews could say of him, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That means that we, though we continue to sin, though we continue to fall short, we're perfect in God's sight because the perfect sacrifice has been offered. He was our sin offering, but brothers and sisters, in Him we become the burnt offering. In Him we become that pleasing sacrifice to God. You see, children, young people, being a Christian, being one of God's people, it's not just something we do twice on Sunday and then we go live the real life. No, no, no. If Jesus died for our sin, if he was the sacrifice for us, then according to Romans 12, we get to become sacrifices. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And that means that everything God made you to be, He made you to be that you might serve Him. Your wisdom, your talents, your insights, your compassion, the passions that He has put within you, as they are sanctified by Christ. He has called you to use all of them to bless one another, to love the poor and the weak and the needy, to show forth the glory and the creativity and the power of God, to turn your work and your worship and your leisure and your, to turn it all unto Him. He is our perfect sin offering who who atones for our sin and enables us to become that burnt offering that pleases God. He's the only one who could, and now he perfectly has. What Israel looked forward to in faith, we now look back with confidence, coming boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy in time of need. The day of atonement truly does display deliverance from the misery of sin and therefore it displays precisely what we need and what Christ has accomplished. And so, brothers and sisters, because he has accomplished it, we now forhear the call, having boldness to enter the holiest place, the inner sanctuary, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." Let us enter the most holy place every day, every moment, and let us serve God with all that we are. To him be all the glory. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, you have given us precisely what we need and exactly what we could never have attained on our own. Lord, we ask that you would continue to enable us to see the truth of what Jesus has done for us, that you would deepen our recognition of the grace that has been shown to us and that you would fill us with a burning desire to be the, the living sacrifices that you've made us to be, a priestly people who serve you heart and soul, mind and strength. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.